Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is a fantastic comedian, Scott Capuro. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much. And uh, the first question we always ask people is, how did you get to where you are today? You've been a comedian for a long time. Uh, yeah, I have. Um, I, um, I was an, uh, uh, an actor, and I was doing a play, and um, some of the people I worked with were comedians uh, by trade, and they suggested I give it a try, so I went to a club with them. I tried in L.A., but I didn't really... Well, I lived in L.A. when I was at university. I didn't really like it because I, I was closeted on stage, and... It didn't feel right. Anyway, once in San Francisco with this play, uh, I went to a club and there's some openly, just alternative performers on stage. And I found it inspiring. Lots of women performing and all sorts of double acts and stuff. And then a couple of homos. And it just felt, it, felt, <laughs> it just felt fresh. Comedy had felt, the, the scripted quality of it felt really stale to me mm. <clears throat> when I lived in Los Angeles, right after I left Irvine University, I just felt like what I was watching was more of a seminar uh, or, or a lecture. But, um, I mean, I was being told things by, you know, middle-aged white guys. And that was the days of the open-collared shirt with the sleeves pushed up like, people, please. Everyone was copying Jerry Seinfeld then. And um, I'm sure they were talented. I just didn't find it. It didn't touch me in any way. And then San Francisco seeing these people talk openly, honestly, about themselves you know, at a time when politics in San Francisco were really charged for all sorts of reasons. You know, the AIDS epidemic and gay rights and women's rights. All that. And it felt very relevant, very real and very now. And that excited me. So that's why I started doing it. And then I, I kept acting, but then I came over here to do a, like a coming of age play. I written that had elements of stand up in it. And it won the newcomer. And then I just stayed on and off for the next 24 years. So here I am. I just started getting a lot of work as a comic. I had no intention of living or working full-time as a stand-up at all. And I'd been in a few films, and I was going to pursue that. But um, the comedy thing just sort of took over. I liked not having to audition. I liked working when I wanted to work and traveling when I wanted to travel. And when you're young and you start comedy and they're, they're th tossing you from festival to festival, it feels exciting because you're meeting new people every couple of months and you're going to countries you could have never even thought of going to before, especially as a work uh, assignment, because that's exciting, because you're meeting people that live and work there. So I traveled before that, but that kind of traveling was more interesting to me. And you, um, you feel as though you take part wherever you are. You're not just taking something as a tourist. You're actually adding as a comic in South Africa or Australia or New Zealand or Hong Kong. or All those places are so glamorous. But I probably would have never got off my couch and planned to go there if, if I hadn't been sent there for work. And have you seen comedy change since that time? Is, or have you seen it regress in some ways or adapt or...? You know, I mean, I think... I, from, from what I can see in terms... Because I mostly close shows. So I, I, I see, you know, the ends of shows. Mm. I don't really... Unless I'm working clubs out of town. I've seen a lot of actually new comics recently. I've been really inspired by the storytelling and the narrative aspect which I thought had been kind of lost for a while. 
because I play places like, you know, I play mainstream clubs now, uh, well, mainstream t to me, but maybe they're still alternative in a way. They're yeah. not working men's clubs. But uh, there's, some, there's an expectation for someone closing a show like that, or even on the bill, that you have to be kind of joke-driven. And it's got to be bam, 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 bam. You don't want <clears throat> to slow down or, or the temptation is to perform for the staff if you work there a lot. Because the bar staff get bored. And they're like, are you going to do that Grenfell Tower material? And, um, <laughs> you know, and then you do it. And then you, you never get the audience, you never get the audience back. And then you leave, you know, you leave stage five minutes early, you go to get paid. And the guy who owns the club's like, I can't pay you, you didn't do your time. Uh, what I did, he said, you know, you're not working for the bar staff, you're working for me, so don't take suggestions from them next time. <laughs> that didn't happen to me, but it happened to a friend. And it was a good story for me to hear. But but I do sort of, you know, I've been booking a lot of solo shows on the road, not just to prepare for Edinburgh, but also because I want the stage time because I want the chance to open up to an audience mm. and see where they're at, what's going on locally, and not just rush through. It's a, not rush, but you know, it does become a bit a bit rote. Because the audience wants jokes. I mean, I was at the Comedia this weekend, and it's a great club, and I mean, it's fine. But the late <laughs> show on Saturday can be a bit circumspect. It's, it's a much lesser price, so it usually gets a, a room, uh, apparently, of drunken uh, students, which I was looking forward to, actually, because I do a lot of universities in the US, and uh, despite what I hear from other headliners, I like university campuses. I think they're exciting. I think. These kids are really politically driven. I think they know a lot about what's going on around them. I think the social media online has really engaged them. They feel a part of the world around them. Not, when I went to university, we all felt like we were in a bubble a little bit. We wanted that, actually. We wanted you know, to party, take drugs, not really be involved with what was going on out there. But now I think young people between the ages of 28 or 18 and 25 are really want to be a part of... I mean, the politics going on in the U.S. right now show that. And here. So anyway, I enjoy it. And I looked forward to it Saturday. The shows have been great going up to that. The other comics weren't really talking to me very much, and I thought I'd made people angry. This happens sometimes when I just think, you know, does she, she fucking hate me? Because I'm in a green room with some female comic I've never, I'm engaging her, asking her so many questions about herself, and my husband has to do this to get me to stop talking because I haven't realized that she hasn't asked me one question about myself yet. Because what does she give a shit? She's 23, I'm 55, I'm her dad's age, or older, and she doesn't care anything about who I am or what I'm doing. And I just think comics are meant to be chatting anyway so I spent a whole weekend not talking to anyone backstage and then um but the shows have been going well and I went out late show Saturday and I did a bunch of news about tie boys and I lost I lost them I, in the first four minutes I lost them talking about tie boys stuffed in a cave and I thought it was okay now because they're fine but I said something about you know, you know, you can understand why the family's upset when that happens because it's like losing a sewing machine. All right, so for anyone who missed the story, <laughs> some Thai young footballers got no one stuck in a cave. Yeah, anyway, the Thai some boys people were in missed cave. the story. Yeah, really. The Thai boys were in a cave. And, um, <laughs> in case you were in a cave, the Thai boys were in a cave. You're right. You're right. So there are, but the audience obviously knew what I was talking about, mm. right? And I said some other jokes about Thai boys. Anyway, some guy just took me on. He's still he's 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 uh, he's grooming me on Twitter right now. He's stalking me on Twitter. Really? Yeah, currently. And um, I don't mind. People can say, you know what I mean? It's like, I dealt with him, but he poisoned the room. Mm. Or our interaction did. So, so I just, was quite harsh with him. So just to clarify, so what, so what actually happened? You started... I, well, I was closing the show. There were two comics on. I walked out to close it. It was late, around midnight. Yeah. And you, what, the expectation is, it's, it's 70, instead of 250, like they usually pack them in in the comedia. Yeah. There were 70 people in there. And I said, wow. This is nice. It's intimate. The previous show, they packed him in like tie boys in the cave. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, 
I mean, the real the people I felt bad for was their clients. They flown five thousand miles. Our producer is trying not to right. laugh, looking down well, at whatever. his feet right now. And their clients be so horny. Anyway, so um, I, you got to get the little ones working. Anyway, they're all fine, and now everyone's eating again. The point is, I said that, and the crowd went a bit quiet. And there are two people from. This is what I mean. There were two people from Hong Kong in the front row. And they've been identified as being from Hong Kong. There were a couple. And I started talking about, oh, I've been heckled recently by someone from China. Maybe you know him. <laughs> now, from the audience in fucking cunting middle-class Brighton, almost ethnic conservatives with no minority friends of their own. Have you been to Brighton lately? Mm. It's yeah. very, very white. And mm. by the way, the G from LGBT has been removed because gay men are men. So they've taken the G out. I'm just telling you, it's no longer a wild card I can play, especially with gay, lesbian, and transgender audiences. They're the worst, but middle-class people in Brighton have heard the word that we're no longer alternative. So I'm playing to a room full of people that think I'm like them, right? Yeah. So they start to turn. It's a, no, I got, no, 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 when I brought the Chinese, no. And the Chinese people are fucking lying. She's a bit grouchy, arms crossed, but you know, they were fine. Yeah. Uh, they didn't need anyone to defend them. But between that and this cunt with the, who, <laughs> ah, by the way, after he heckled me, more jokes. And I, I you know, I, I slammed him five times in a row. He passed out. Passed out. So when, the, when oh, when the security. Was that, was that the force of the put downs oh, or the yeah, alcohol? whatever. When the security finally came over to tap his arm, they woke him up. <laughs> so I said, I, I said, I'd hoped you, they'd know what chucked you. I, I, I'd hoped you were fucking dead, you cunt. And, um. <laughs> It was that tone of the room uh, that I had to now complete the show. It was 12.15 by then, and they're really, really hammered. And I've got to not just close the show, but close the show because the host had left and said, can you finish off the show? And I thought, well, since we're finishing, let's just finish now. So I closed it in about 18 minutes. And I said, I told the audience, this is what you get when you behave that way. You get this show. Next time, go to a club thinking I might want to laugh. Because when you, I said... <laughs> If you go to a comedy club, by nature, you're a cunt. The comics think that, by the way, because you can't amuse yourself. But if you then go and you're offended, you should blow off your own pumpkin head at sunrise because things are only going to get worse for you tomorrow. Good night. So I just, I fucking had it. I was tired. It was hot. I know. But, you know, if you don't scream no at the comic. Don't yell no. It's not about your boundaries. No one knows you. No one gives a shit what offends you. You're over there. I'm over here. The lights are pointed this way. I have the mic and the mic stand. If you don't like it, do what two people actually did. Get up, angrily scream at me, grab your jackets, and walk out. Angrily scream at me? What, what have I possibly said that would elicit that sort of response? Nothing. I wish I had. I felt I wasn't rough enough on them. I kind of felt bad leaving early. I should have stayed up there and done the Grenfell Tower material. I just fucking watched them just one by one walk out. But I, I just, you know, at this point now, I just, I don't see the point of fighting that battle. I also don't want to turn people away from, from that club. The comedian is trying to, you know, is yeah. probably like every other comedy club in the country struggling to keep people in. I mean, I, from what I can tell, they're doing well. I think it's a great club. A lot of people do. A lot of comics think it's the best club in the country. I think it's wonderful. You know, you get to go to Brighton. You have a nice weekend. They put you up. They're really generous. Yeah. It's a great gig. I wanted it to go. I was really thrilled because I got there on Friday night and the comics were complaining about the crowd. I thought that, that we had a nine Welsh stag party in. I love a good stag party. I think yeah. they're fantastic. There's, there's a way to play a stag party. Hen parties are a bit, they can be touchy. Because with stags, you can fuck with the stag, you know, make fun of him, and the guys love it. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that's what they And they'll join in, that's what they yeah, want. Yeah, yeah. 
That's why they're there. With hens, you can't make fun of the bride. You can't call her fat or stupid. Because you do that, the hens all getting up on you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But Especially with, with this voice. Or really, any male uh, yeah. harassing a woman, people don't want to see it. That's, and that's fine. But this stag, I was Welsh. I've got a lot of Welsh material. I did it all. And then I, I knew his name, so I kept calling back to it. Yeah. And they fucking, they loved it. Yeah. So... Oddly, on Sunday when I was leaving, one of the comics on the bill I ran into at the train station, he was really nice to me. And I think he's just been distracted all weekend. He's a great guy. He's a really good comic, actually. And he took me to breakfast. And I thought, why is he being nice to me now? Oh, it's because I failed last night. He said, he, had, he said he'd left the building. That's why I didn't say goodnight. But as I'm describing the late show, he said, yeah, I saw it. I'm like, so you were there. I think he was waiting for me to lie about it, like most comics would. Yeah. But I don't. And he said, you know, you've got nothing to prove. It's fine. And I said, well, now you think that. And now you like me because I fucked up. Because the two shows before I had done really well and I closed them. And I guess that's seen as, as intimidation. I don't know. I don't know why anyone responds the way they do to anything. Mm. I say to a lot of comics on the road, hey, what are you guys doing this weekend? Oh, I'm working on material in my room. Well, I can't, see the way, I can't wait to see the way that reflects itself in your set tomorrow night. Yeah. And then I watch the set and it's the same shtick in the same place, to the same seat. And, and that's fine, I don't care. But it's like, well, let's go to a movie or have a drink or go to yeah. dinner or something. It's Cardiff, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> but no one wants to socialize so, with me. I guess because I'm a cunt, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I was gonna say, I, uh, you've demonstrated some of it already, <laughs> but I was gonna say, do you think of yourself as an edgy comic? Do you think you're edgy? I just, you know, when you ask this comedy changed, it came to mind that when I first came over, and this maybe maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly, but when I first came over, especially the Edinburgh Fringe, because in those days, comics, uh, when they, most of us, when we lost money, our management took a hit. So a lot of comedians took a lot more chances. You mm. saw a lot more double acts. Lot, there were more women on the circuit then. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, what? young women now is good because they're really because of because of the, the what's happened over the last few years has really pushed young women up. Yeah. Yeah. But for there were, there was like ten or twelve years there were there were almost no women on the circuit. And when I first came over, there were absolutely no openly gay comics on the circuit. When was this? Called? This was ninety four, ninety five. Julian was too famous to do the circuit by then, way too yeah. famous. And that weird thing had just happened on TV for him anyway. He wouldn't have gone back on the circuit. And there was nobody else. I'm not saying there weren't gay people. I mean, openly once. Yeah. There's no one talking about it on stage, which was a benefit to me. I don't understand why some comics complain about their gender now or their ethnicity as being a problem. It never is. It sets you apart. It's always a good thing to be different. At least it was that there were a lot of different people then. I mean, a lot of the larger clubs needed to sell, sell, sell because the competition kicked up in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so the shows became less of a rocking boat is the only way I can describe it. It became less... I wouldn't say it became more consistent in the performance you saw. There was there wasn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that chances weren't being taken because comedy is always a risk. Um, it's not an easy way to make a living for anybody. But I think what I did see was a lot more of a steady sale in every show I was performing in, and the expectations on at least I think on me, uh, at least my management told me this was that I'd be as consistent as possible. And to me, I, had, I felt as though I had to hit a hit every time. Now, my husband works in the comedy club, so I know from him, from his experiences with the owner, who stands behind the bar with him and watches a lot of comedy, it doesn't matter who you are. If that club owner does not hear a laugh consistently mm -hmm. every 15 seconds, you're not going to get invited back. Do you think people have become more sensitive over the, over no, the I, well, time I think, in this I, country? That might have happened because of social media and constant influx. And, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, I'm not saying it is. No, but, but do you but think it has changed? Maybe, but you can, you can prick at their sensibilities a bit more. I think also comics have gotten older and their financial responsibilities have become greater. They have kids now, they've got mortgages, and they're less... 
I think, willing to take risks on comedy stages. And maybe they never did. Maybe they never, that was never part of who they were. But certainly they're not going to do it now. And I think young people choose comedy now as a, as a like the way people choose law or medicine. Used to, like I described, used to fall into it. You never thought you'd be, you never chose it. It just sort of happened to you for a lot of people. People lived on boats or on the beach or slept on couches. They didn't really, you know. But now young people choose it. And I think the exposure on TV and whatever, they, 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 they see they're myopic about their career path. They want something specific and certain. They want to be on BBC One on Saturday nights, or they want to have a panel show, or they want to be a, a compare. And to, and to do that, when they, their management, um, certain management companies kind of encompass them. They they, you know, take them to their shows and they watch them closely and they shape them. They form them, mm. and that seems to me to be sort of a different uh, strategy than what I was accustomed to when I first started. So. Yeah, I think all of it's changed. But the reason I'm asking you about whether people have become more sensitive is you clearly went into that gig that you've been talking about, right? Mm. With an expectation that the Thai boy material, whatever, would be acceptable. I, so well, so there yeah, might have been exactly. a point, is what I'm getting at. Exactly. There would have been a point somewhere in your career where you would have gone to a gig, you would have done that material, right. and you would have felt absolutely safe and, to do it. And I thought I was safe in Brighton as a gay man doing something alternative at midnight. I couldn't imagine that that people, right, you're right, I, I did, but you know, I have a lack of a stop button. I, I, I don't have an, <laughs> an off switch. I could have gone on stage and done the set I'd done in the previous show, which would have worked perfectly well. But I thought, I want to do something fresh, a bit different. I want to do some, I want to do some of my Edinburgh Fringe material. Mm -hmm. I want to do stuff about gun control. I did tell a gun control joke that got absolutely no response. What was the joke? Uh, it's, well, it's more of a setup to something. But I, t I say, um, I'm American, but don't worry, I'm not a cunt. I mean, you know, I own a gun, uh, but that's because I believe in gun control, and I want to win the fucking argument for a change. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a joke about what I do with my gun, how I don't really fire it. Anyway, yeah. so, and they just fucking stared at me. Now, it might have been just because it was late, and, and they enjoyed the joke, but that was, I, I think the whole thing, I could have had them had that interchange with that unhappy person, those people storming out, and then the Chinese, had that not all happened. But, you know, 18 minutes in, you ha I had um, soured that room. And I'm not gonna blame, I've never, ever blamed an audience, and I'm not gonna fucking start now. My job is to make my material accessible to a room full of strangers. Mm. It's not babysitting so much as op opening up their minds about the way gay men behave, changing their minds. Because we're not just all there to decorate Brighton. Some of us are there for other reasons. So I want them to see that and to enjoy it. Um, and they had up till that moment. And I think, you know, I think when you ask me things change, I think you're asking me have audiences' sensitivities yeah. become yeah. more tender. And about certain things they have, I think one good thing is I'm less likely to get, you know, tattooed forearms crossed in Birmingham with the Glee when I walk out and say I'm queer, because that used to happen mm. 10 or 15 years mm. ago, but that doesn't happen now. Yeah. Uh, they don't give a shit, especially young people. Young people assume that gay men and women have always been able to get married, have always been able to join the military. Those things are not issues to them. So you can, you can, you, they'll cooperate with you on those subjects. Mm. And, uh, and you have to find a different way to make them funny if, if you want to. I think the challenge has always been there to, um, if, if you're a comic like me, to find out what people's sensitivities are and 
elicit laughter from those and try to illuminate their own hypocrisy. I mean, like I say, people fragile about ethnic minorities, and you can, I can bet that most of that room in Brighton uh, doesn't have a close black friend. Now, whether that's true or not, it's funny for me to point that out mm. and point out what that could actually mean. I mean, you know, I only read The Guardian for the typos, but I understand <laughs> reading it that, you know, people, they want to be engaged and involved in current political situations. So I don't see how I can stand on a stage in front of strangers for 25 minutes and not give them the chance to be engaged what I think of about the political, political situation right now. And at that, you know, you know when it's funny, I, I did a show in, 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 in North London recently, and there was an American couple in the front row from the, from the South, but they were posh Americans. They spoke well, and they owned guns, and they voted for Trump. And as I, and they were not shy about telling us those things, although they knew at first to not tell me. They knew enough. They'd been here long enough as tourists. But then they decided to tell me, and, and that was a room full of left-leaning Jews mm. and these two people. And they were about my age, and they were white, and I know how to talk to these people. The room, the, the British, w got tenser and fucking tenser because what I was doing was making fun of them to their face, but they weren't getting it. I was performing to them for the rest of the room, and I was complimenting them. I was, I was, I was flirting with them to make them think, not that I agree with them, but what they were saying was okay. And the rest of the room was completely horrified with what they were saying, right? But it was making them tenser and tenser, and I couldn't tell what they were angry about. But if you're not on the edge of your seat in a comedy show, I don't know why the fuck you're there. Mm. Are you there to have a mirror held up to you to show you how great you are? Because that's why I don't perform in gay and lesbian clubs, because that's what they want. And I'd rather chew on ground glass than perform at fucking <laughs> at a club in South London and wave my fist around and say how great gay people are. Mm. I don't give a shit about that. If you want that, then hire a fucking tranny or a fucking a, a diva or a drag queen. Hire those people, because that's what they'll do for you. But that's not what I do. If you want that, get a juggler, go to a children's party. But this, you're in a comedy club in 2018, and my president has just tried to have a coup in your country. He's just tried to, to dismantle your governmental structure in three days, and he almost did it. That's how weak your political system is right now. Does any of this mean anything to you? So while I'm talking to them about Trump, you know, I'm talking about your prime minister and the political situation here and stuff. And they were laughing about it, about how casual all is. Oh, yeah, people should hear shit by guns. They shot weeping on the tube. And, and all, and the audience <laughs> like, you know, it was hilarious. What a great, what a gold yeah. mine. What a chance for them. You know, don't, I try to take advantage of that. But don't you think that, that there is, I, I've seen it more and more, and I gig quite a lot to, to younger people. And I see it, and now that I'm 36, I see it in people in their mid-twenties or early twenties, certain words, they tense up and the shutters come down. I used to do this bit about my mum supporting Trump uh -huh. and how she's a disabled Latin American woman. Uh -huh. And I'm just like, you know, you like him, but he don't fucking like you. And then uh -huh. and then I was and then a bit about how rest, right and left used to come to get need to come together. That bit used to kill. I can't do that bit anymore. Uh -huh. The moment I say the word Trump Everybody holds bang. Well he's a bit of a downer he is, I have to say. <laughs> it, it, it's hard with him because you know, he's on the front page of every newspaper. He's the most famous person in the world. I think people are afraid he's going to win in 2020. He probably will. Yeah. And I think people are just, they're just, they're sick of it. It might have been that response. Oh, but I, I know what you mean about young people. They do claim, although I think it's all hype, to have trigger words. And they yeah. do claim that, um, you know, they want safe space. 
and all that. But if in the first few minutes of your act, like one technique I try to master, although I'm not good at it yet, I'm trying to get it for Edinburgh, is to dispel all of that the first five minutes so that we can kind of move on. If you can let them know that what a safe space actually is and what feminism actually is, because some of them are too stupid to know what it means. And, um, <laughs> and they think they know what a trigger word is, but they don't. So if you can tell them what democracy actually is and what it would look like if they were actually practicing it and how miserable they'd be, then if you can get that all out of the way, then they might cooperate. I'm, I'm worried about Edinburgh. I have to be honest with you, I am. Why? Because I'm fucking dreading it already. Because, um, I mean, I love the fringe. It's kind of, it, it shaped me as a comic in the first few years I was here. Um, and I'm not, it's not for the reason some people are about the expense of all that we take off. That's all our decisions. But I'm doing this thing uh, with Bob Slayer where, you know, people pay seven pounds online, but if there are extra seats. I go up to the bar upstairs and say, there are empty seats if anyone's come down and watch the show, and let me pass the bucket at the end. But I don't know that I want, I don't know that I want a bunch of people that don't know what I do in that room. I don't want to spend a half hour on them working out their fucking, fuck off with your sensitivities and your sensibilities and your drunken loud, I'm on a 920, your loudish behavior. It's not fair to the people who've paid actually. Even if they're only 10 or 12, they've actually paid and they want to see what I have to say. I don't want to deal with those fucking bald cunts in the back who couldn't wait to get away from their wives or, or five women in a pack who've been out shopping and are sunburned and too tired to listen, or whatever, or a 25-year-old who thinks they know anything. I just, I don't, I don't <laughs> want, the show isn't about you. Ever since 9-11, they all think their opinions are of equal importance, but they're incorrect. Unless they're on stage, you want to write a check for three grand, get this room, then fucking do it next year. But for now, shut your cunt. But no one tells people no anymore. That's a problem to me. No one says to them, you might be wrong. Have you actually asked yourself the question, do I know anything? Because really, it's about the questions and not your fucking answers, because nobody really gives a shit about your personal experience. I mean, my problem with Twitter is not that comics go on and harass. It's that they don't do it in a funny way, because your job is to write jokes about it, not to tell me about, oh, in the second half of your show, how you've been raped. How is that my problem? Why isn't this funny? Why should I feel uncomfortable in your presence? Why have you kidnapped me, locked the door, and put me in this room to listen to your griping? It's like, this is not, why am I pretending to enjoy this? Why, why, why? I, I just think if there's a narrative attached to that that makes it interesting, then that's great. And honestly, my first Edinburgh show where I won all, the, all that shit, it wasn't necessarily that funny. I mean, you know, I think I had the, the narrative, that thing where you admit things to an audience, where you kidnap them. I knew that's what I was doing when I was 30 years old. I knew that those people couldn't leave the room because I was the first queer they'd ever sat in a room with and listened to tell a few jokes. But really, that, that, that whole show is about my first sexual experience with my cousin in, in, a, in, a, in a trailer in California the summer Elvis had died. That was what that show was about. And it wasn't funny. That wasn't funny at all. And they fucking stayed because they felt an obligation to. I knew that. I knew I had them hogtied. I knew I did. And I've done that now. And what I'd like to do now is amuse and entertain an audience for 55 minutes. Because to me, that's more of a challenge. But whatever you do, you know, don't assume when you go to a show that that comic is actually there to make you feel better about, about who you are. So you're saying, essentially, that audiences have become more entitled? Well... 
Listen, I really admire people that make the sacrifice to go to live performance because I oftentimes don't. I can't fucking be bothered to, you know. But, um, but I, you know what I say to people if they, wanna, if they ask me when they see a flower show, they see a show. To me, it's like what my yoga teacher tells me, which is just come with an open mind and an open heart. That's all you got to do. Uh, if you have any preconceived notions about how things should be or what a performance is, leave them outside. And believe me, I spend a lot of the show every five or seven minutes reminding them that. So I give them a lot of red flags. And if by the end they feel in some way cheated or, I don't know, harassed, that I kind of think that's their problem. I think if someone feels, um, if in an audience someone feels offended, it's usually their problem. I don't know them. Again, I can't. Well, that's why I was asking about her sensitivity, because I'm from Russia. And I tell this story sometimes on stage about someone saying to me, go back to Russia, you packy. Right. right. And the Asian that's people... Quite a, that's quite a lot of boxes. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and it's always the Asian people that laugh the most. Mm. And it's always the white people that look around to make sure it's safe. And, and I, I always wonder what that's about. I know. You know, I know what you mean. I, I tell the audience my husband's black in the first few minutes of the show. I used to. I don't now. Um, and part of the reason is so I can drop the N-bomb about five times during the set. <laughs> And um, <laughs> because I do. So do, do you think of yourself as an edgy comedian? Uh, well, what is edgy, really? I mean, you know. <laughs> I think we've answered that. Uh, my, my, uh, <laughs> With the end bomb. My husband gets asked a lot, what's your, he has an accent, he's from Brazil. What's your, what's, your, what's, your, what's, your, what's your background? And in Britain, people mean, you know, what are you? And in, in Brazil, it's an offensive question. So he just tells people now, um, I'm black. And that shuts them the fuck up. They don't ask any more questions. Because people don't know how, in this country are afraid of black people. I'm from the US. I'm not afraid of black people. I, live, I lived in an integrated city when I was younger. You think people are afraid of black people? Terrified. And I think that no one knows how to, white people don't know how to talk to black people in this country at all. All young people know how to do is impersonate them. If they can, and it's a pathetic attempt with the, all that stuff that young people try to do. I can't even, I can't even copy. <laughs> but you know, the lingo, the, the colloquialism, well, the young like kids. Like fam and all that. Uh, yes. Yeah. And these Blood. kids, it's the richer and whiter they are, the oh, more right. they try to be so, that way. Yeah. And it, they think it's groovy and cool to be black, which is so offensive. It's so offensive that if I say my husband's black, the audience allows me to talk about black issues. They, I'm doing it so that at, at, two thirds of the way through the show, I'm like, you know, he's not black. I just say that because I want you to like him. <laughs> and so, well, after you drop dead, right? Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, and, and they can't embrace the idea that, that that they, you know, at some clubs in this country, the compare, you'll be in a room full of 300 people. There'll be a mixed race couple in the front row. He'll he or she will talk to the white person, the white person, the white people. Skip the black person. I've seen it happen so many times. So the first thing I do on stage and say, how are you doing to the black guy? Because he's probably offended that no one's talking to him and mm -hmm. wonders why, you know? So, anyway. So you think people in Britain are scared of black people, white people in Britain? Yeah, a little bit. You haven't <laughs> noticed it? That's incredible. I never, well, they're I criminalized in every way. But I, mean, I, thought how many of you opposite, I thought it was in America where race relations were worse. That's what I... You believe the hype. That's what I was told. You're from Russia. You know better. You know the way they talk about people from Moscow in this country. Like, you're all fucking criminals and drug dealers. Yeah, and that's you're all rich. We are. And, well, <laughs> that's why you can afford to live here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, of course. The, the black people are, are represented, must, in, 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 I think, in a much more healthy way in the U.S. I mean, and of course there are problems. But, hi, we had a black president. Anyway, so... <laughs> um, 
you know, whenever when black people are seen in positions of power in this country, as 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 randomly as it happens, they're either treated like like they're lucky, or they're ignored, or they're belittled, like the female MP who's made some mistakes, but she's treated like she's. Like, like, like it's her fault the Labour Party are fucked up. Well, Diane Abbott. Yeah, like it falls in her lap because she had, a, I, I guess, a diabetic overthrow on the radio a couple of times and lost her number, her mind for figures. I don't know what, what her excuse was, but, but, you know, she made a couple of mistakes. Jesus, Nigel Farage. Anyway, so, the, you know, anyway. So, yes, they're... they're interesting. So, when you're, you're, when you're playing a comedy club in New York or Seattle or L.A. or Chicago, if you're on stage... You better talk to the ethnic people in the room. You better be able to tell the difference between a Nicaraguan accent and a Honduran accent, and a, you know, and a Mandarin Chinese. Somebody who speaks Mandarin Chinese, right. as opposed to someone from Hong Kong. You've got to do the accents correctly, and you've got to refer to them, or else they'll come up to you after the show and say, "Why didn't you talk about me? I'm offended you left me out." Really? Yeah, it's a different. Does that really happen? Of course, it's happened to me in New York. It's amazing because in the UK, my my certainly my experience would be that if you did an accent. You would instantly be treated, as but racist. not if it's the accent of the not the ethnic people you're 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 satirizing. They like it. The, they do, of right? Course. But the white people don't. Of course they, but you know they've got to line up. <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell them. I don't know what to say except, you know, pull the fucking cucumber out of your butt and live a little. I don't know. You mentioned politics. Uh, you don't do political material so much in your set, at least from what I've I seen. do. Depending on the show, there's a political improv show at the store that we do that's really politically motivated. Some of that material leaks into my set. Um, yes. So, what do you make of what's happening in in politics right now? Well, I feel like the world is turning right, and I think that's what that's the conflict audiences have when you bring up Trump, because audiences in comedy clubs, in central London at least, or most of London, tend to be left-leaning. When I did a free speech comedy show, Comedy Unleashed, at the back Andrew Doyle, we've had him on the show. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. And I, he might have mentioned that about half the audience in the first night were right-wing people. And they showed up thinking that to them, free speech in a comedy show meant right-wing comics on stage finally talking what they can talk about. Because comedy is so left-leaning in general. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, I feel like, if you talk about politics, in a comedy show in London or Edinburgh or Birmingham or, you know, in urban areas. It might be a good idea to gauge where the audience is at. But I had to, I mean, between the three of us and these three cameras and that hot guy sitting <laughs> in, in style, between all of us, I, again, I don't, and I mean this in every respectful way, I don't give a shit what their politics are. I don't care. They're not my friends. The show's about me. Hashtag me. <laughs> not me too, just me. And if they want to disagree or get upset, well, good for them. It's hard to react to anything now because everything's on an iPad. No one cares. So if you're in the room with me and you want to share your thoughts, that's fine. Your feelings, not so partial about. They're transient. Right? And I'm not dealing with your feelings. Again, I don't know you. This isn't a therapy session. We're not going to break up into discussion groups and talk about your abandonment, low self-esteem, and your ego problems. I don't give a shit. But if you disagree with something I'm saying on stage while I'm saying it, not five minutes later, and you want to talk, I'd suggest you raise your hand. But if you want to yell something out, then let's get into it. That's why writing a show takes so long for me, because I res every political idea I express, I research. I've got to have a backup for it. I have made the mistake in the past. 
of saying things flippantly on stage I didn't have a backup for. And it's always those moments when you get caught by an audience member smarter than you. And you, you know, you've got to have a joke about it. I mean, I think, it, I think that you ask about the political situation. I think the only place that we can deal with it now is on a comedy stage. Because it's the only place that people can allow someone uh, the, the, the breath or the girth to bring up these wide subjects and sort of lighten them a bit. Mm. Pull the plug on them, let some of the air out. Open a window so it's not so stuffy in here. And actually discuss people's hypocrisy in a way that's that's lighthearted. That's, the thing is, people ask me, uh, you know, I've done a few interviews for the Fringe, and they're like, you know, do you hunt down offensive material in this offensive economy? I don't ever look for what I think is offensive. I look at things I find are funny, you know, like the cave boys or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, I find that shit hilarious. So if I find guns <laughs> funny, you know, if I find fun, shooting teenagers in some way funny, I mean, have you talked to an adolescent? So if I, <laughs> if I find some of that, you know, then, I, then it's my job, you know, to find out. What, and if people, oh, how can you make fun of a high school shooting? I'm like, how can't you? What other option, frankly, is there? I know this sounds grand and very kumbaya, but what other option is there to survive any of this other than to laugh at it? Because really, the amount of control any of us have over our destiny is so clearly not in our hands. I think that's what upsets people, is they realize the British Petroleum owns the world, not us. So it doesn't obviously clearly matter who you vote for. Because Theresa May, that vote of the, last summer didn't affect any of the outcome. Theresa May is doing exactly what she wants to do. I suspect that she brought Trump over knowing what he'd say, so that people turned against Brexit even more. The more he supports it, the less the British public like it. Whatever her journey is with Brexit, she may be playing all of us. No, voters might as well take their votes, their ballots, and flush them down the toilet for all the difference they've made over the last five years in the country, and in the U.S. as well. I mean, when Brexit happened, I knew Trump would win. I know that those elections are fixed. I know they are. And the gerrymandering by the senators fixes them anyway. So it doesn't matter how you vote in California. They don't even come to California, the presidential nominees, to do campaigns anymore because they know that California, the largest state in the union, with one tenth of population in the U.S., it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how we vote. And what do you think of Trump? And especially, I would like to explore as a comedian because as a comedian, watching political comics and in inverted commas talk about Trumps, he's orange, he's a dick, he's got small hands. I'm like, really? Mm, this know. is the best mm. that you can do as a professional comedian I, with your comedic talents. I mean, I thought about voting for him because he's against gay marriage. <laughs> no, I am um, the only way out. No, I talk is he, about... Wait, is he against gay marriage? Yeah, he... Because I hear people saying he's like the most pro-gay president America's ever had. Well... Kind of <laughs> I imagine you find that funny. He, he, he's, he's seeding the Supreme Court with judges who don't feel that way. So it's, it, it may fall into their, into their manicured hands whether or not gays are able to get married in a couple of years. So whatever he says... You have, to, you have to follow Trump's actions, not what he says, because you know he says a lot of bullshit right. from one day to the next. So I look at what he does, and it's really about the judicial appointments in the U.S. more than anything that's the most frightening. But, um, you know, I think he's a stand-up comic, and I think he's a performer. I think he's a populist. I think he's about... He does a lot of what comics do. is He, he disrupts people, and he creates chaos, and he wants complete control. And I think that he doesn't feel any loyalty, and he's... he's, he's, he's Ambitions are limitless, and I think that he's a media—he's a—he's a media and 
corporate mogul from New York. He's a property developer from Manhattan, so he's a gangster. So he has no loyalty to anyone, including his children, anyone. You've seen him almost turn his kids out a couple of times. So, uh, and his son-in-law is one of the thickest, thickest piles of pig shit I have ever seen put in front of a camera. And he likes that because that's, that's his, that's his, that's his spokesmodel internationally. He sends that kid everywhere so he doesn't have to go. And I think he's, he's, he's a bit of a genius. Really? Well, don't you think that? He's manipulating the world right now. I mean, if he's not smart, how fucking thick are we? He came over here and almost completely disrupted the entire political structure of this country within a matter of hours. I, I, that interview he gave the Daily Mail, and then he got home and said, <laughs> about Putin saying, I meant wouldn't, not would. And he has 90% approval ratings in the Republican Party. That's the highest of almost any president in the history of the US, 90%. He's doing something right? I don't know. I, for me to say that he's stupid seems weird because how, I don't, is he? Or is he just a genius at manipulating the media? And he knew that, like he said, if you ran for Republican, they believe anything because the party's too stupid. He's got them in the grip of his tiny hands. <laughs> I don't know, but you're right. I wouldn't, what I wouldn't do is, is, is talk about how, how stupid or orange he is, because that's not the point. That's not the issue. These are, what I'd rather not do is, is, is dismantle his character. It's really his, his policies I try to go after. Because you said that what he was doing in America was terrifying. Would you just expand upon he's that? Trying to dis, he's trying to, he wants to expel people who, who aren't white. He wants to cleanse the U.S. When he said, um, you know that, um, what is it, cleaning, uh, the pond, what is it? The, Drain the swamp. swamp. You know that, where he got that quote from. No. That's Mussolini. So when he, when he borrowed that quote from Mussolini, he was speaking to not white people in California. He was speaking to the same people that elected Reagan. When Reagan said, when he was elected, when he was nominated for the, for the office the first time by his party. He was in, in Alabama and he said, I'm putting my, or Mississippi, I'm putting my, I'm putting my feet in the Mississippi mud, letting you know I'm with you. And he took his shoes off and put his feet in the mud. And what that meant to Southerners was he hates black people. It, it's, it's, a, it's a coded term that meant a lot to a part of his party that he wanted to be loyal to him. I mean, Reagan was famously a race baiter, and I think Trump is too. But hold on, drain the swamp is about Washington, it's not about the country. Sure, sure it is. <laughs> if you're a neo-fascist living in the US, or you're right of Mussolini in the Republican Party, you know exactly what he means. You know that when Gore Vidal called DC a swamp in two of his books, people accused him of being racist because he, he mentioned the swamps of Africa Trump is preying on people's minds. He's, he's creating imagery in their minds that means something to them that it doesn't mean to you because you're not from there. But in America, if you're from Arkansas, the swamp means black people running with chains on their ankles away from prison with dogs chasing them. It brings up imagery in their minds of all sorts of things that, you don't, that don't make sense mm -hmm. to you. So, and again, it's a Mussolini quote. So anyway, I think whether Trump is racist and he has proven business-wise that he is, he is at least uncomfortable doing business with black people because he wouldn't rent to them when he was working for his dad. So, and that, 
I think that he's a, a horrible racist. That's what makes me nervous about him. How you can live in Manhattan and be racist? Although, frankly, when you go to Manhattan now, they've pushed, uh, there's almost no ethnic community left in the island. You know, even Harlem has been cleansed to black to the black community, like in San Francisco. So I think he's trying to urbanize and, and Clorox the entire country. He wants people to live at his living standards. But when you have a, a capitalistic society like that, you're gonna have a lot of losers. But Trump doesn't care about the losers. There's no safety net in the US or it's diminishing. And that's what freaks me out. Because I grew up with a single mom. We lived out of a car for a while. We, we grew up, I, you know, my dad left my mom. She didn't have a high school diploma. She had to find a job and a way to support three kids. And it was very, very difficult when I was younger. So I know what it's like to grow up without a safety net. And I know how terrifying it is. And my mom couldn't rent. They didn't rent to single women in San Francisco in those days. We had to move far away. The commute, it was horrible for her. And I think it's kind of what killed her young, frankly. And I think had she had a bit more support, my mom might have lived longer. But, you know, there isn't that. Not the kind you have here. And do you think we're going the same way in this country? Yeah. I think with Brexit, maybe some of the people that felt vulnerable that voted for Brexit are going to be the hardest hit. I think we know that now. And I think when you, you know, I think the, the I think that the, the health of any country, however powerful they think they are, is not the way they deal with the wealthy. It's the way you deal with the dis disenfranchised in that country, whoever they are. And that's people with drug addictions or single moms or people that don't identify themselves through identity politics, but identify themselves in other ways. If you speak to someone like your mother, who's having a very difficult time, the way you described her, she might be, I don't know, the way you yeah. described her, and you ask that person how they identify themselves, I think the last thing in her mind is whether or not she's a Tory or, or, or in the Labour Party. Yeah. I think she thinks, well, I'm these things. I'm a working mom, or I have these kids, or I can't find a job because of these ailments I have. She identifies herself by her circumstances, not her fucking politics. But when I'm in front of a room full of white middle class people who are telling me what their political identity is and how I should match that, that's when I get angry. Because I think you don't know my fucking story and you're here to listen to it. And if you aren't, then you should probably fuck the fuck off. So I'm worried, about that's what I'm concerned with. That Trump and Brexit are making people build fortresses around themselves. And either you're allowed in or you're not. And you're either on our side or you're against it, that famous Trump, uh, Bush quote that he said when he bombed the Middle East in, in, in you know, the early 2000s in response to the bombings in New York. He told Europe, you're either on our side or you're not. And that was a real threat. And I think that people now feel that way. I think there's less discourse. Frankly, I think, it, you know, a conservative audience politically can be funded or performed in front of. When I've done conferences, the Greens were good because they know how ridiculous they are. <laughs> when you do a Labor Party conference, perform, it's really I gotta tell you, the worst kid you can ever say yes to is the Hayes, the Hayes thing, that that the uh, HAYS, that fucking Guardian sponsored fucking. Mm. I did it. I, huh, 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 like three hundred people in in, a, in bleacher seating, fucking staring at me. I'm not kidding you. I have never. I was chasing them around the stage, trying to find what their what they what they would joke about, what what the, what what their common what are what they found comfortable. Nothing. I found nothing. I found nothing. It was, and then I come back, and some of the guys from the comedy store said, "You did that gig." I said, "You should never. That's the worst one." Yeah. Why did you? I said, "Well, I, I wanted to go to that area. I thought it would be pretty, and I, I read the Guardian." They're like, "No, it's impossible. You can't." And um, did you think those people are just sanctimonious and too serious and 
they care too much about. Is that what it is? Maybe. Because there is a section of the left, isn't there, that's gone a little bit apeshit right now. It feels yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to put it gently. There's no discourse. Yeah. There's no. If I say to them, if I say, um, you might, you might. I'd be God. I got into the store when we were talking about um, some of this yew, yew tree stuff, and I said, you know, some of the allegations are obviously incorrect. And someone who has three children told me, isn't one enough? Isn't one enough? And I said, you mean one enough to destroy all the careers it's destroying? One enough to now, the BBC has to pay that guy 600,000 because they threw a, flew a helicopter over his house and they were wrong? I said, I think it's insulting to people who have actually been abused or harassed that that's your stance. Because you're saying, that it's all the same. And if you ask a victim, it's not the same. They want to hear their story, have their story heard. I had to talk him off the ledge for like seven minutes because we were doing a show together. And I never, I don't think I got him. I think he still thinks I'm a cunt. I think he thinks I'm a, some kitty diddling fucking retard that I don't, I just don't get, I don't get it. I don't know. I don't know. Whereas two, two, two Tories came, friends of mine came and saw my Edinburgh preview last Thursday. I went for drinks after. What'd you think of that? It was fun. <laughs> I, did, I did an hour and ten minutes just rah, rah, rah at them and some people oh, you know it's fine there were, I had three kids from Sri Lanka thank God from Sri Lanka in the fourth row they were glorious mm. they were Muslim young Muslim kids and they oh, they well, there were four but one of them was living in London a student here I'm like what are you guys doing here at my preview we want to see a comedy show and they were just they were oh they were great but some of the you know other people white Londoners were not I got a lot of ticks like oh, yeah. Mm. You know. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Ooh. And I asked the kid, was he a virgin? And they, the white people, they, uh, you, and I said, and he said, no, I, I fucked somebody. I said, did you? And he said, not, not my girlfriend, though. I cheated on her. Ha 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 Ten minutes later, we're talking about, well, I didn't really fuck her. I fingered her. You know, I couldn't really stick it in. I'm not ready for that. But uh, oh, I just, oh. And I'm on stage thinking, you know, gold dust, you know? Yeah. Make it all the... Like this. But, you know, but my, my Tory friends, you know, and their, their stance on Brexit's hilarious because they're from a very wealthy part of Britain, the Chiltern line, I'll just say that. Yeah. The, and their line, you know why they like their railroad better? Because it's run by Germans, which they prefer. <laughs> That's what she told me, which I thought was hilarious. So they, um, you know, they, they didn't take any of it personally. Mm. None of it. There's yeah. a lot of evidence, actually, that conservatives are better able to understand other points of view. As opposed That's to why they're in power right now. Yeah. I mean, that guy you have running that party. That fucking idiot. Cool. How, how he's not taking advantage of all of this yet. Oh, fucking. You're not a fan of Corbyn? Well, I don't support Hamas, so no. <laughs> but he does <laughs> I don't support Hamas I support the existence of Israel and I support Palestine yeah. but I don't support Hamas as a political body ruling Palestine I think it's probably a bad idea yeah. I'm not, I don't support the government of Israel either but if you go to Tel Aviv it's a lovely place and you feel very safe hmm. as a gay man you know I don't feel harassed in any way
Do you think you can get away with more on stage because you're gay? Because you're gay I, well, on stage? Well, that's why I brought the G in LGBTIQ. I think my G's been removed. I really mean that. I talk about it in the show. I don't think I can anymore. Because I saw you do a bit at Comedy Unleashed, this free speech comedy night, about uh, yeah. Me Too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I don't <laughs> see a straight man that's getting away show. with that. Um, it's actually me three. It was my three fingers right, up, right, up, right. up a tranny's hole. Um, <laughs> hashtag me three. So yes, <laughs> these were raped. Um, <laughs> I thought it was a guy. And that's a true story, by the way. Oh, God. It seemed to me that you were also, you were making fun of Gwyneth Paltrow. And it was a very mm. good bit. My and pussy's I, dry. Right. Why, Gwyneth? Yeah. Why is it like a flower arranger? Why did it go dry? Well, uh, Harry Weinstein, uh, all that. <laughs> yeah. And it's very funny. But I don't. If you read her, but I don't think. You read her. Let me finish this question. I don't think a straight man could get away with doing that bit on stage. It's really the. It's my my perception. You might be right. Do you think I'm wrong? I'm. No, I. I'm wondering if I've seen anyone do it. Um, I haven't. I hope I do. I think the only way to show respect to that such, and I know that I I agree with women. Men can be incredibly harassing. Absolutely. And we do live in a rape culture. If you think we don't, you're out of your mind. Also, again, growing more with a single mother, you know, my mom worked in a law firm at the front desk. She wasn't a lawyer's secretary. She wasn't a legal secretary. She didn't have the education. But she was the person that, you know, and all, each lawyer had their own secretary. There were eight of them. And they'd all, they, she said, I can't think of one secretary not fucking her lawyer, her boss right now. My mom told me that. I was like, I was like 12. I mean, I, I know <laughs> that it's terrible. That's why I try to make fun of it. It can't just be something that people ignore in the press or in the media. It can't just be something, it can't be in the media and they're not dealt with, you know? My backup story is if people come after me, I'm gonna be like, you don't, again, you don't know. When I was, came out of university in LA, I was working for Dick Clark, who was a TV producer, and we used to produce New Year's Rocking Eve in October, and I was a PA, the weakest, the lowest of the low on the set. And I had, I had men try to push me behind bushes. I, I had a guy jump on me in a car. I got, I got out from under him because I'm six foot two, but it was difficult. So I, I understand the abuse and harassment. Women, women and gay men share a lot of things in common. Mm. That's what I try to draw in that. Also, what happened that night was the Telegraph critic was there, and she said, I want to see some Me Too jokes. She told that to Andrew. And she said, I better see some Me Too stuff. So I told some Me Too jokes, and she reviewed me badly and said my act was mean. But no. Yes, I just, I, I no. just, yeah, and I just written those Me Too jokes. Actually, I really was looking forward to doing them. And then she when I, wanted to do she that story. Specifically said that at the bar. I, I better see some Me Too jokes. No. So she saw way. some, and then she ignored them. But the thing is, I was glad because I had a chance to try them in front of an audience willing to hear them. I don't know that I, for one. I'm telling you, I wouldn't do that Me Too stuff. I don't think that I'm. There are some clubs I wouldn't do it in. Definitely not do it in. Uh, and, and, and I was I was a coward about some of my stuff on Saturday at the Comedia. Maybe I should have gone all the way. Maybe I should have done five minutes on Gwyneth Paltrow. I do it in Edinburgh. I'll probably get torn to shreds for it. I'll probably have people walk out and people won't come. And, and my husband, oh, we will have that conversation where my husband says, can you be a bit nicer? <laughs> um, but I can't. And um, I think, you know, there's no point us living in the world and not talking about I can't believe I have to say that. But I think that, to answer your question, a straight guy, if he were to, there's a way to do it, probably. I'm trying to think of a comic. Someone I think, someone like, who could really, 
Although trivializing it could be a problem too. But someone who could lighten the load of it somehow. I can think of two or three people that might, although they probably never would because they don't need to. That's the thing. I feel the need to do it. It's a vocation for me. I can't ignore it. I feel I have to do it. I feel, I feel dirty after if I don't do it. I feel like I've given in. Like I've, like I've, like I've let down the team. I do. Which team? The comedy team. I think our job is, is to push them, is to push it, be assholes. I mean, we're clowns, we're annoying. We're the annoying guy in the office or in the Shakespeare play. We're, we're the, we're the, <laughs> we're that guy or girl. So our job is to, here's the thing. Playing all these clubs on the road this summer, I realized a lot of comics want to be liked. They want the audience to like them. I think that's so, that's so strange. Why? For one thing, you'll get nothing out of them liking. You'll never see them again. But what's there to like? You're a stranger. I think it's creepy. It's just needy to me. When, when the comics start to say, you know when you and audience goes, oh, yeah, that's not good. I get embarrassed. I get like my, like, I don't want you to pretend like you know me. I just, I want to see your story. What, what's your take on it? And I don't. I don't necessarily want... I want them to like the show and play along with what I'm talking about. But us being friends, I've got enough friends. Just the thought of you people liking me or even talking to you after the show exhausts me. I don't mind doing the VIP shot where you do the photos and stuff, but please don't clap at me on Twitter 18 times in a row or like this guy stalking me from the comedian. The show's over. Lights are out. You know, the, the price of admission got you the set. That's it. I can't imagine why I'd be liked by those people. It sounds exhausting to me. Are you not liked enough in your life? Is, is you, not. But I mean, <laughs> is your biggest ambition to be on TV? I just think, cut your wrists. I mean, TV's great. It sells tickets. Good for you. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm saying if you want to be liked or nice so that people hire you to be on TV, I just think there's, you've got a missing cog up there somewhere where you've forgotten along the way some, somehow that, our, that there's... That, that there's an art to what we're doing and it's important what we do. And it's, it's not about poo chokes or, or your mom. It's about, it's about, it's about again, the, do you have an onion in your hand and you strip back layer after layer until they, they see the, the nexus, the nucleus of something. I don't know how people memorize their material. I can't figure out what they're saying half the time. I just, ah. I mean, you know, the other night as a comedian, there was a conversation. I, I didn't mean to, but I just, oh, and the security guy next to me said, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I didn't mean to let that noise out. But it was just what I was feeling was like, I just can't fucking get on with it. I just, how do audiences sit through it? I, I don't know. I, you know, it's why I don't go to plays because 10 minutes in, you know what the play's about yeah. nowadays. Yeah, the new plays where it's like, oh, I see where we're going here. It's just like, I want to be changed. I want to be alerted to something I didn't know before. Or else I got a lot of shit to do. I got boxes to take, I got, I got dry cleaning, I got stuff. So I want to bring something to the table. But I want everyone to have a chair at the table. That's what liberalism is. We all give someone a seat, whether we agree with them or not. And then we listen. And we shut our fucking mouths for a minute if we're sitting in the audience. And we listen. I think that's the most reactionary but also liberal thing you can do is to listen to someone you don't agree with. Mm. And let them explain to you what their point of view is. 
Otherwise, we might as well just all wrap ourselves in Tupperware and be royals and have no experience with the real world. If you want to be those, I feel so bad for those kids and those women who've married them. If you want to live that life, because that's what that life is, you want to turn yourself off from every human experience, then you do that. But that's, I think, a psychosis. So. All right. Oh, that's a great way to end the. Well, I mean, uh, the slit your wrist line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could have ended it there. Yeah, yeah. That would have been uh, yeah. interestingly appropriate, yeah. but that's also a great yeah. Yeah. That shows how your mind works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Thanks for letting me know. I'm sorry I was late. No, it's, it's all right. It's all right. Uh, do, do you want to do the, the famous final question, well, Constantine? Well, uh, yes, I do. Uh, the, the question that we always ask people at, at the end is, is there something that we ought to be talking about that we're not talking about? We being society, not just me and Francis. Oh, right. Well, if you'd asked me a few weeks ago, I would have said kids in the cage in the U.S. because they were, they were caging those kids. Oh, oh right. Sorry, I thought you said cave, and that's why. <laughs> well, that too. I thought you were coming back to that. No, but there's so much stuff about Trump, and they were ignoring this. Uh, People talked about that quite a bit, though, let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, uh, eventually. But you know, there's about a week and a half where no one's... Is that right? I, I was like, why is it... And, um, and then... Uh, although it's been going on for years, actually. But uh, I think now it's probably... It's probably the... Um, the removal, the, the the dismantling of people's personal rights that the political system is. Your civil rights are being diminished. Which ones? Well, in the U.S., it would it, it's things like abortion and your right to free speech, because Trump is trying to, to dismantle the free media. But I think that's also, I think those two things are going to be a problem here soon, too. I worry about your courts and your judicial system. I mean, I think, yeah, I think people have become accustomed to living on breadcrumbs. I think austerity has made people, I think you should worry about the NHS. I think the NHS is Britain's greatest hour. That silly war and all that Churchill shit is bullshit. I think, I think you should be thanking Adolf Hitler, really, instead of criticizing him on the National Geographic Channel. Because without Hitler, you wouldn't have an NHS, and that's the best thing Britain's ever produced, I think. I'd worry about that. But it doesn't seem anyone's... I mean, people say they are, but are they? Worried about it? There you go. Get worried about it. <laughs> you, if, if, unless you've lived in a country with no health care, you don't know what it's like. Yeah. I, I have lived in a country yeah. with no health care. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible to watch your mother die with a stack of bills on her desk and not be able to do anything about it. So... Yeah. God, that's insane. I know. You're supposed to be a comedian, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. God's sake. Uh, My uh, mother always said she was the funniest one. All right, one. well, yeah. if you haven't been utterly depressed by this whole episode, <laughs> yeah. uh, do subscribe. Comedy's great, though. I th really think that this is, uh, you know, you could talk about these things in a comedy realm because yeah. it's the only place. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? That I was Cutting into our final bit, but actually that's why I got into comedy. I remember watching people like George Carlin and Bill Hicks really talk about stuff. Mm. And then I started doing comedy like three years ago, whatever it was. And I started going to comedy clubs. And I very quickly realized that's not what comedy is anymore. <laughs> but it really And depends. I tried to do yeah. it, a little bit of that. But it, I just find that, like you said, the audiences have gradually been trained to, here's the tree, here's the tree, here's the tree, this is the tree, you know? It, might I suggest if you tour, tour with an alternative comic. Because mm. it will tune the audience's ear. So that by the time you come out on stage, they'll be much more open mm. to different subject matter. That's a trick I learned early on here. Because this isn't new, this limited expanse mm. 
an audience has. You, it's your job to, to you know, pry them open a bit. Yeah. And there's tricks you can use. And one is, you know, have a black female comic open for you. I mean, there's loads of good ones. Get a good, sure. get a good, you know, get a, a great female. And if she's black, that's great. Because then the audience will be like, wait, a woman? When I had a woman open for me, they would announce her name over the PA. And the audience would boo her name being announced. Because it was a girl. Wow. And then she would do great. And then they'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so do that. All right. And on, and on that note... Uh, but it's your job to train them, too. It is your, that's sure. part of your job. But I actually, you know, one of the biggest comments when I when I do my set and I talk about politics a lot and Russia and mm. Russian politics and all that, one of the most rewarding comments for me that I sometimes get is, "Oh, someone's actually talking about real stuff." Mm. And it's not every gig necessarily that that might happen, mm. but when I get that, I'm like, okay, there's actually an audience out there that's interested in more than poo jokes. You know what I mean? Yes, there are, there is. And, um, and again, I might suggest that you spend more time amongst the alternative comedy scene. You will see comics working on that subject matter. Uh, I started in the black comedy scene in San Francisco because I couldn't find any clubs that would book me. And uh, black audiences were fantastic to me. They were very all-embracing. I, did, I didn't have to be closeted around them. They didn't care about any of that. They didn't care about my politics either or where I came from. And they, those black, the, the comics I worked with were incredibly supportive because... At the time, you know, being queer was such such a difficulty in 1988, 89, 90. So many, all my friends were dead. You bring that up in front of a black audience and they get what you're talking about. Mm. Um, middle class white people in San Francisco had no idea what I was discussing. And it was right down the road from them. So you, you can probably find, I found a group that you need a bit of support too when you first start out. I know that it's hard for new comics because they want to get work. And they don't want to put, you know, it's not really, even the audience they're so worried about, but the promoters and producers and the club owners. There's only so much you can push them before you get banned. I know that, because I've <laughs> had an experience with some of them recently. These young people, I think, are fucking brilliant. What, where are you playing? Oh, I, I got been banned from two clubs, and one club called my employer and stuff and, and alerted them about how my politics were in my comedy set and shit. I'm like, so I know you have to be, you know, you're powerless when you're new. Although you have your youth on your side, you should utilize that as much as possible. So just find a supportive, you know, or create it, you know, create a club. That's, what, that's what Izzard did. Yeah. You know, yeah. he started yeah. a club. So. Awesome. Well, there's five minutes of free advice for me. I appreciate yeah. that. But you can imagine what it would have been like for someone like Eddie when he started. What, what an yeah, anomaly, right? right? right. Where would he oh, perform? So totally. of course he started. Or oh. Julian. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Clary had to have a bodyguard and shit. Because, you know, it was tough. Mm. All right, if you're still with us, uh, subscribe to us uh, and uh, tick the little bell next to the subscribe button, then you'll actually get a notification of our new videos. Uh, follow us on Twitter at TriggerPod. Scott, before we let you go, uh, you, you, you hate people clapping you on Twitter, but if people want to follow you on Twitter... Yeah, it's just my name, Scott Capurro. At Scott Capurro. Yeah, yeah. And is there anything else uh, we need to plug? This probably will go out after Edinburgh. Uh, n no, no. Uh, I'll, I'll be in California uh, October. We have fans touring. everywhere. All right, well, I'm all, all those dates are on my website. So. All right, perfect. Uh, go to Scott's website, check him out. He's a fantastic comedian. But very, talk very about very a touchy bunch of cunts, California. <laughs> <Jesus Christ>. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> see you there. Yeah, very, very funny guy. I'm on Twitter at Constantin Kissin, Francis. I'm on Twitter at Failing Human. <laughs> Ab absolutely appropriate. And uh, there we are. We'll see you next week. Thank you.
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.